Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hello, Medicus listeners. It's Catherine. I'm here today with Dr. Father DeMarco, who is an assistant professor in the Division of General Internal Medicine here at Loyola. He also teaches two second-year courses, and the Physician's Vocation Program is a chaplain to students, faculty, and staff, interviews applicants to the medical school, celebrates Mass at the hospital and university chapels, and is a practicing physician here at Loyola, including at the ACS clinic. So I think Dr. Hart put it best when he described you as the ideal fit for Loyola because you are kind, a good listener, highly intelligent, and a skilled physician and a person of deep faith and humble disposition. He's too kind. (laughs) And I personally, I've heard it from multiple people, my classmates and people I've come into contact with only in two months in the hospital who just talk about this person who's just an amazing listener and really cares for people. I think you're a part of what makes Loyola Loyola, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to learn more about you, your journey into medicine, and what motivates you. So I thank you for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Catherine. Thank you for your time. So if you could start off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit more about your path, both becoming a physician and a priest. Yes. Well, I can say that it's a uh, a long story. I think a testament to allowing life to move us and being willing to let go of fixed plans and assumptions uh, because life has unfolded for me, Catherine, in a way that uh, I couldn't have possibly predicted. I would not have put myself here. If you would have met me at age 30 or 35, uh, I wouldn't have guessed that. I probably would have said I'd be practicing medicine somewhere in southwestern Ohio in private practice and doing some teaching on the side. Probably had a, would have a family by now. I think that's what, what I was thinking about at age 30, 35. Becoming a Jesuit really just unfolded organically for me. I was practicing and teaching in Dayton, Ohio at the time. And it, a wonderful practice it was a group practice and it took teaching very, very seriously. So I would, I'd be on the, the internal medicine boards for uh, uh, a month at a time doing inpatient medicine. I always had a student or a resident with me in the clinic. And things were going really well, I thought. Well, this is the path that, uh, that I'm going to take. I'll be in private practice and do a little teaching. I began to, at some point, really feel drawn to working with, with folks on the margins folks whom society has consigned to the margins. And so I started to work in the evenings at a homeless shelter in downtown Dayton. After work, maybe doing it weekly, I would show up there and I'd see all the patients who were coming in that evening. And as I was doing that, I began to, to really notice some changes in myself and what I really wanted. And it, it, it was really, it was fascinating. And at about the same time, I had, a, um, I had a, a resident, one of my residents, who was a Roman Catholic nun, interestingly enough. And in the resident clinic where I was precepting, 
I remember one day she was telling me about a retreat that she was going to make at the Jesuit Spiritual Center in, just outside of Cincinnati, a little town called Milford. And she said, you know, you ought to make this retreat. And so I made the retreat some, probably some months afterwards. And I think the combination of working with the homeless, making that retreat, began to, to raise some questions about how I was living and what I really wanted. And so I decided I would take a break from my medical practice. And I thought, well, I'll just I'll take a sabbatical because my practice was actually able to find someone to cover for me. I thought I would go take a sabbatical for a month or so, maybe two, maybe three, uh, and then I'd be returning. Well, I ended up after this retreat taking a sabbatical, but then I kept extending that. <laughs> and I extended it and ended up ended up doing a whole variety of things. Uh, I spent some time in Rome, interestingly, where I had a chance to practice Italian. I visited my relatives who were over there. Uh, but what really ended up happening was I started to work with more and more groups that were marginalized. My dad and I spent some time in El Salvador during that stretch. I think the really dramatic thing that happened was um, I was one day looking through um, through JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and I happened to see in the back of it where the classifieds are this a large advert that said doctors needed on Indian reservations. And so I called the number. The AMA was running this. I just called the number and I said, well, I'm, I'm interested in doing this. And they said, we need someone in Red Lake, Minnesota. And so I went up to Red Lake, Minnesota. Flew into Bemidji, went to Red Lake. And when I got there, the docks, they were so burned out that they actually, and it is, as soon as they finished orienting me, they took off. Like one, they didn't all go simultaneously, but they went sequentially. Within a matter of days, one of them was gone on vacation to rest. And when he got back, the other would leave. And so I ended up covering a lot of a lot of that. There's a little hospital, it's an outpatient clinic, and then there was a field station in a remote part of the road. I ended up covering that all, not quite, but almost by myself. I was just like working constantly. And I came out of the clinic one day, and it was a beautiful day, a beautiful summer day in northern north central Minnesota. I remember just looking up into the sky and having a sense that I was where I had been invited to be, where the, where I would say in my tradition, where the spirit had put me. And that launched me really to call the Jesuit order. It was that, that experience of working up there with uh, the Ojibwe, that's the tribe of Red, sometimes called the Chippewa. Ojibwe would be, I think, the word in their own language. Anishinaabe, I think is what they call themselves. That led me to actually begin to inquire, okay, how does one, how does one become a Jesuit? And the reason I thought about the Jesuits was because I had made a retreat at that Jesuit retreat house when I was still in practice, and something about their spirituality really resonated with me. It's probably the conviction that God is in all things. What does that means that no matter what's happening, God's somewhere in the midst inviting 
growth, inviting healing. Mm-hmm. God is somewhere extending an invitation for us to become our best selves. And that a Jesuit can find God doing anything. And so you have Jesuit physicians, you have Jesuit lawyers, you have Jesuit professors, you have Jesuits uh, who are making films, you have Jesuits who are writing, teaching high school, doing almost anything and everything. Uh, And they conceive of what they're doing as prayer, as ministry. So I thought, well, maybe medicine could be, for me, ministry. Maybe I could begin to think about it as something other than a profession. It's clearly a profession. But maybe I could begin to think of it as as prayer. And so that, that really pointed me toward the Jesuits. I called the Jesuit uh, vocation director. Those are the people who are the gatekeepers of the, of the order. Jesuit uh, vocation director, who's since become a leader in the order, invited me to come to Chicago. And he said, why don't you live with the Jesuits in Chicago? And I did. I moved to Taylor Street, which is a community, still is a community. It's down in Little Italy. And I lived there, and I worked as a chaplain. Actually, right across the street, I worked as a chaplain in the hospital for about six months. I didn't do any medicine during that period, just, I shouldn't say just, but I functioned uh, as any chaplain would. And, and uh, done the chaplain mentor programs, you see how chaplains work. It gave me a chance to sit with patients in a different way. Uh, and also to hear the difference between how a chaplain interacts with a patient over and against how at least some physicians that experience was profound in revealing me to me. That is showing me what I really wanted. And as a result of that, I applied to the Jesuit order. I was convinced that that's where I was being called, at least to test it. And they accepted me. And I ended up, after that, spending two years in what's called the novitiate. That's the first stage of Jesuit training. It's two years where you're really just testing what you want. You really want this life. You get to try it on. You get to try it on. Much like in your third year of medical school, you get a chance to try on the role of a pediatrician and an internist and an emergency medicine doc and an obstetrician gynecologist. The novitiate is somewhat like that. You're, you're trying on the life to see if it, if it fits. And so you make retreats, including a 30-day retreat in silence and to engage in different ministries. I, when I was a, a novice, Jesuit novice, I worked with refugees in Detroit that were going over into Canada. I, I didn't know this is a real good word for it. I lived in the house with refugees and simply helped them navigate life in the United States while they were waiting for the Canadian authorities authorities to decide whether they met their criteria for admission. I also kept working on with Native Americans as a novice. I'd go up to Red Lake. I made a pilgrimage as a novice. This is really unusual. Jesuit novices are required to make a pilgrimage. That is, they, they're, they're required to leave the novitiate and go out without any idea as to how they're going to get back. 
And so they go out for maybe four weeks. And so what I did was uh, I wrote to someone in White Earth, Minnesota, and I knew they needed some help in their clinic. And so I, I got them to pay for me to come to White Earth. I flew into Fargo. And so I worked as a doc on the White Earth Reservation for two weeks. That was really hard work because they had me seeing the children as well as adults. And that's sort of out of my comfort zone as an internist. So I did that for two weeks. And then I went up to Red Lake. And then I called the, there's a clinic on the Pine Ridge Reservation. I arranged to work there if they if they would cover the cost of my transportation. So I traded cost of transportation for work. So I kept jumping from reservation to reservation. Uh, after Pine Ridge, I arranged to go to the San Carlos Apache Reservation in Arizona. Again, I would just say, if you can get me there, I will work. Uh, I will volunteer. I'll volunteer my services as an internist. And so they jumped at that. They just covered, all I had to do was cover the cost of a ticket, which was really inexpensive in those days. They'd give me a place to stay, and they'd let me eat at the hospital. And so I kept bouncing across the country until I finally got to Phoenix, at which point I took a plane back to the militia in Detroit. And when you would be jumping from reservation to reservation, what was it like having maybe had more experience at first in Minnesota and just seeing differences or like where and how you could be helpful. Yeah, all of those tribes were rather different. White Earth and Red Lake are very similar because they're the same tribe and two different bands. But the other the tribes were so, they were quite radically different. The Ojibwe were different from the Lakota on the Pine Ridge and then the Apache were different still because they had different histories. They, 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 Geography they inhabited was so different. The Apache were kind of a high desert on the plains. My attitude in going was to see, I think initially it was to see if I could be useful. I don't think I thought much at that point. Okay, how do I, how do I really uh, inhabit this role and listen carefully to, to the culture? and allow an exchange of gifts to occur. I remember one of the first patients I saw on the Pine Ridge Reservation was about, a, I want to say about a 25-year-old man. And I was examining his heart and lungs, so his shirt was off. And I could see these scars, these huge scars running across his chest. I just wondered, why, why are there horizontal scars right here? And I kept seeing that. So all the, all the men that I, I was examining had the same horizontal scar, and I had no explanation for it. Until mm -hmm. finally I said, well, what is, what is that? Uh, how did this happen? All they would say is, it's a, uh, it's a religious thing. That's all they would say. Mm -hmm. I found out later, maybe a few weeks later, that uh, what I was seeing were scars from what's called the Lakota Sundance which is a central ritual among the Oglala Lakota, where wooden stakes are actually driven through. The skin is pulled up. A wooden stake is, is driven through it, mm -hmm. so that there are actual stakes attached to the chest.
suffering done for the tribe itself. So I, 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 the reason I bring this up is it, I just wasn't tuned in to the fact that I was interacting with really different cultures. I was trying not to do any harm, and I was interested in learning, but I really didn't know much about the cultures that I was interacting with, the mysteries, how they, how they thought about things, how different it was from the, the dominant culture. That learning would occur slowly over a very long period of time. Yes, what else happened on that adventure? I kept running into, I've run into folks from time to time, Catherine, who, especially on the San Carlos Reservation, who said, you're crazy. You, you are, you are, you need to pass. I used to drive out to a field station with a nurse and a pharmacist. And often on those trips, they would say, you know, you, you just, why don't you just forget your plans? Don't, don't become a Jesuit. Why don't you just stay here <laughs> and work instead? Uh, and they were, they were all, they were all friendly folks, you know, they were children of the, they were children of the 60s, as am I, and they had the same sensibilities that I grew up with, uh, and they were very, very interested in service, they just weren't very keen on the idea of anyone becoming a Jesuit, let alone a Jesuit priest. And did they have any connection to the people, or were they just kind of on that same, maybe approaching it from a different way, but journey to serve and... Yeah, I think they were, as many folks during the 60s were, very, very socially aware. They had a strong social conscience mm -hmm. that this community here, uh, San Carlos, was unfairly established by the federal government and used to, to warehouse people to keep them out of the way. It's our responsibility to, in some way, give back, try to address the injustice. I think that's what was, they were, they were, I mean, very well-intentioned, very well-intentioned. I think the, it was, it was on San Carlos that I had, was my first and maybe my only experience of actually working with a patient who was Native American, born in Arizona, raised in Arizona, but did not speak any English, didn't speak Spanish either. She only spoke Apache. I had never come across, she was an elderly, and Apache was her first and only language. I've never had that experience before in the United States, caring uh, for a Native American who only spoke their tribal language never learned English. And did she come alone too or? Came with her daughter who of course spoke both Apache and English and effectively was serving as, as translator mm -hmm. for us. Yeah. Now we have to in medicine provide translators and this was probably before the day when that actually was, was a regulation. I think we would be hard pressed to find Apache translators if, if it weren't for Can you give us some insights into the spirituality you grew up with as a child? I, I'm a cradle Catholic, in other words, I was raised Catholic. 
although my understanding of what that means has changed as I've, I've gotten older. Uh, I think the dominant thread running through uh, our spirituality uh, was my father was a very strong believer that from the one to whom much is given, much is expected. In other words, if you've been given gifts, then it's your responsibility to find a way to use them and to give back. And that was a value that, that was instilled pretty strongly. Uh, so I went to, my dad took me when I was a, I was a junior in high school. He took me to Guatemala because he'd started working, this was the early 70s, he'd started working there as a, he was a dentist. He started working there as a dental missionary. He would go once, maybe twice a year, and take all his instruments with him, and down to Guatemala he would go, and end up in a Jeep, you know, driving six hours into, into the mountains. And there he would, at first he was doing mostly extractions, and pulling bad teeth, mm -hmm. and then, Gradually, that, that morphed into uh, training people in the village to pull teeth. And then after that, he began to find equipment for them. And after that, he began to find money to support that. And then he began to teach restorative dentistry, how to save teeth. And he did this all in the 70s before, before we had a clear sense of what global health involved. And so he, I think he was, he was a pioneer in many, many ways. But he took me, and then he, he took each of my brothers. I have three brothers. He took them in. He took us all on these trips with them. So as a junior, and sophomore, a junior in high school, and he took me down there, and we ended up. We flew into Guatemala City, and then we, we kept moving via battered rental car. I don't think we had a Jeep on that trip beaten up rental car up six hours into a mountain town mm -hmm. and there we set up a clinic so basically I was I was his assistant mm -hmm. and it, it was the whole thing was, was shocking to me I mean you imagine someone who was born lived in the suburbs in Ohio and all of a sudden I am I'm inside homes where there's no floor, it's, it's dirt floor, and, and there are chickens living at close range. The animals are living at close range with, with people. I had no sense of what I should and should not eat or drink, and so I was getting sick like every couple of days, as sick as I've ever been. And then while we were there, there was an earthquake at night. The whole thing was, was just a shock. I'd never seen anything but I began to, I think it began to open me to, uh, to the reality that uh, not everyone lives as I do in the suburbs, that resources are not equitably distributed throughout the world. That was really the first experience. So, so that, came, that came from family. My dad would later take me to, he took me to Brazil. He had to stop going to Guatemala because uh, eventually conflict developed in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And the place where we were going was like a hotbed of anti-government insurgents. And so as he kept trying to get into this 
village, he, he began to uh, have to go through checkpoints, government, military checkpoints. Mm -hmm. and, and after a while, they, they gave him a hard time because he was going into an area where there was a lot of guerrilla activity. Uh, and then finally, he switched to Brazil. So he took me to Brazil before medical school. I remember going to Brazil. And uh, then took my brothers to Brazil. We ended up working in, in a little village in Brazil that was accessible either by river, boat, or by propeller plane that would land on a uh, grass strip. Mm. And I went, we actually landed on the grass strip uh, in a village that had no health care. So that would set up his clinic there, and I would carry his instruments and see that they were sterilized, chemically sterilized, and we would do what we could. So that, that actually grounded the spirituality. That, the sense that, okay, you, you have to, to somehow give back. My dad also had a, to have a real love for Native Americans. I remember on family vacations, if we were near a reservation, he would somehow... Like within two hours? Yeah, if we were anywhere around us, we would, he'd stop. He would stop. So I, I was exposed at the life on the reservation. I didn't understand it. I could see it was radically different from the way I was living. I didn't understand it, but it gave me an opportunity later to, to come back to it and, and wonder about it and be open to learning more. Do you have any idea how he made these connections in other places? I just can't imagine like my parents doing that. He'd go through the church. He'd go through a church. Mm -hmm. All of these places, they, they may not have a hospital or a clinic, but they always had a church. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he would, he'd make his connection right straight through the church, which might have been one of the few functioning institutions in these places. And so he would, he would in those days, of course, there was no internet. He was writing or sometimes attempting to call, often writing. And the letters would take a long time to get there, and they might not come back. Eventually, he, he set up a network of contacts, so it became easier and easier. He would just say, I'm arriving, and, and here are the dates. It all amazingly fell into place, considering that it was, a lot of it was being done by handwritten communication, just going back and forth between uh, Guatemala or Brazil. A lot of patience. <laughs> you can't, yeah, you can't rush a letter. He had a lot of patience. Uh, I would say from the early 70s until he could no longer go, he stopped going maybe in, must have stopped around 2008, 2007, 2008 is when he had to stop because of his age. It was once or twice a year to these places. What does the Cura Personalis like, mean to you, and how do you take that chart in your practice? Yeah, uh, literally, personal care. In the Jesuit world, in the Ignatian world, it refers to, we might say holistic care, that would be a more contemporary term, holistic care. Its root is, uh, is actually scripture, and that's where it's the, the whole idea behind personal care is this person, if you 
child of God, let's, if you believe, you really believe that, then what will that do to your approach to life? How is that going to change your approach? Well, you're going to care about everything. I'm not only going to make sure that they're on the right dose of your wife's smart or metformin, but you're going to want to know something about how they navigate life, how they find meaning in life, where they're struggling, and how you can best harmonize with whatever those forces are that help them become their best self. Obviously, we all have room for improving in how this is done, but I, I think that, that animates Jesuit mission everywhere. Almost every Jesuit institution is trying to live that out and is hoping that their faculty are living that way and their staff are living that way and the students they're educating are going to graduate are going to live that way. That's its root, that, that there is uh, within us a spark of the divine. Actually, I think it's even more profound than that. But I think God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Maybe just not quite seeing it. And so if you believe that, then what else could you do? You have to, you have to engage in holistic care. It's also going through medicine and trying to keep that in mind. It's also kind of frustrating, too, because it's never the same. What that means for each person? Yeah, it's like your your signature. You might have been taught in school to write it a certain way, but at some point you have to appropriate it. It has to become part of you. It has to make sense to you. That's really true of Ignatian spirituality. You could get ten different descriptions of it. They might all have something in common, but they could sound quite different. How do you appropriate it? How do you make it your own? How do you make it live? How do you make it alive? I, I really think it does start with the sense that God is in all things, and it's especially true for human beings, that God is within us. And if that's the case, that, that will color how we care for people, especially people we don't agree with, people whose political or moral his compass is different from ours. I think that's when it becomes really, really, really tough to do. Because you want to give them that high standard of care, but finding a way to... Yeah. It's part of us is probably uh, maybe irritated by something they believe in that's radically different from, from our belief. How do you step beyond that? How do you transcend that and still offer the kind of care that you would want to receive. So another observation that I have is that it would kind of appear that you have two callings, hmm. one to be a priest and one to be a physician. And they're two quite unique professions. And I wanted to ask you more about that. Yeah, there is some over. And that both medicine and ministry have as their goal human flourishing. We want human beings to flourish. We might go about this in, in different ways. So I think their goals are, are similar. Some of the skills cross over as well. Both privilege, good listening, active listening, accompaniment, 
compassion, empathy. They're similar in that regard. Inhabiting both of them was initially a challenge for me because I wasn't quite sure how they could be integrated. And I began to think about this in my first few years as a Jesuit. How do I pull these together? I can tell you that there's no magic involved in pulling them together. What happens is the integration occurs as you live them. You just have to live it. You just have to show up and reflect, wonder about, try different things to the point where over time the integration seems more organic. I almost don't think of them as separate anymore. I think of them now as woven together as medicine being ministry. It's actually being a kind of ministry. It's a highly specialized ministry, but it's a kind of ministry. It's the way I do ministry. And that took a little while to get to it because I had to begin to think of it in different terms. I had to have experiences of God in the midst of practicing medicine that convinced me, oh, medicine is an encounter with, can be an encounter with the divine if you cultivate an attitude, I'll call it a contemplative attitude. Mm-hmm. I think you can have profound experiences of the sacred in the midst of taking care of patients, trying to, trying to offer her personality. For those of us who are pursuing medicine, medicine, what wisdom do you have to share with us from your unique experiences and perspective? If I could presume to suggest something to medical students, and it actually is what I suggest. I, it's something that I would have wanted to do more of when I was a student. I think I would have spent more time cultivating a reflective practice. I just have a sense that I went through medical school lurching from subject to subject, just trying to master the material, which has to be mastered, right? Got to read, have to learn. But I don't know that I stopped much to at that age to really wonder about the bigger picture. I don't think I ever asked myself as a med student what the best version of myself would really look like, uh, or am I moving in that direction? It was more, I've got to, this is what I have to do now, This and this is what I have to do now, and this is what I, I think I just went through without pausing and, and wondering about things. Having a reflective practice or attitude is very useful when you're taking care of patients because you have powerful experiences. Whether you whether you want to have them or not, they, they're there. It doesn't matter. They're coming your way and they shape us. They shape us and they can shape us to become our best selves or if we're not reflecting, they, we might find ourselves getting really tired, burned out, depressed. If I could roll things back, I think I would try to spend more time cultivating reflective practice or attitude, expanding my horizons, wondering at the bigger picture uh, rather than just focused on what was immediately in front of me that needed to be done. Would have enriched all the powerful experiences that I was having and probably would have helped me learn not only something about medicine but about myself practicing medicine. 
And that learning would be delayed until it was a little older. That's what I would suggest. Cultivate a reflective practice early in your medical career and then use it all the way through to learn about who you are, what you really want. Folks who do that, I think in med school, don't have to chase the specialty that they're going in. They don't have to run it down like it's, don't have to chase after it. I think it'll come to you actually. For you, does that take the shape of prayer or journaling or those retreats that you were talking about previously? Yeah. It takes, it can take a lot of, a lot of different shapes. For me, it's often integrated as part, historically it's been integrated as part of my prayer. Mm -hmm. So what I'm, what I'm doing is reflecting in the presence of the divine mystery, the name is God, mm -hmm. just wondering about it. But one can reflect regardless of faith tradition and regardless of spirituality. It doesn't necessarily have to be something you do in an obvious, explicitly religious way. I've journaled it at certain times in my life, but I tend not to do that too much except during retreats. Retreats have, have been a real big part of reflecting. I make a retreat once a year for about eight days or so, silent retreat. And I meditate daily as well. The meditation's very quiet. All of those, I think, are ways of a helpful practice when you when you're driving home on the commute is just to stop and ask yourself what else is in the car with me what's following me home today something that usually will follow you home every day and it's probably the the affective part of an encounter you have maybe with a patient a colleague a nurse someone will stay with you will follow you around it's helpful to turn and look to see what that is, because it probably will show you something about you. So I try to do that. I do that on my commute. What else is, is coming home with me today? You can do it on the reverse commute, coming in in the morning as well. What, what else? <laughs> What's coming in with me? Today? It's still stuck. <laughs> yeah, what is coming in to, to the hospital, the clinic, the office? Could you tell us a little bit more about your time on the reservation and what you learned and how it influences your practice today. Yeah, Pine Ridge in particular. That was that was a, a really critical moment. That was from 2010 to 2015. That's what I was doing immediately before coming here. I was on Pine Ridge. The first couple of years I practiced medicine and did uh, medicine during the week, so I was working as an internist during the week. Seeing often the sickest patients on the reservation where there's, there are, many patients have uh, high blood pressure and diabetes, the triad, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, hyper dyslipidemia, mm -hmm. was common in, in most of my patients. So I would do that during the week, and the week, on the weekends would be more traditional forms of ministry, so maybe presided mass, at one of the churches. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I transitioned to more prison ministry. There was a, the tribe had its own jail. Mm -hmm. It was really a prison. And so I would go in there. What I learned the, the most on the reservation was to learn to check your agenda at the door. 
So I went out there thinking, well, they need doctors, they need priests, they really need both, and I can do both. So I'm, I'm going to go out there and I'm bringing my, my gifts, my skills. That's what I'm actually going to do. I'm going to go out there and, and bring these along. What I didn't realize was on the reservation, I would be shown that it's helpful to, to set everything that you assume and all your plans, to set it right down at the gate, leave it there, and open to a, a new world, a new culture, a new society that is operating with radically different history from the one that I grew up with, with a, a historical trauma, is lived out every day, where the pace of life is just so different, where life is measured, time is measured in seasons. And I, I think that was, that's what I came away with on the reservation, learning to check your assumptions and instead listen and look to see if there are any invitations extended to you by the, in, in my case, the Lakota, uh, and then try to harmonize with those, which is far different from, okay, uh, we need to build a new, I don't know, physical education center. So I'm going to bring a team onto the reservation, we're going to do that, and then we're going to leave. It's a radically different way of accompanying them. So over the four or five years that I look to see where they're offering to collaborate with me. Mm -hmm. This actually came from the reservation. This was given to me by the people of the Lakota at uh, one of our churches, Sacred Heart Church. I was out there when I, uh, Jesuits at some point late in their careers profess final vows. And so I was out there when it was time to profess final vows. And uh, so they had that made for me. Part of the ceremony was sort of enfolding me in it. For those of us who are not in the room at the moment, Dr. Father DeMarco is talking about like a large tapestry. Would that be the... They call it a star quilt. It's a traditional Lakota gift, a star quilt. This is a king-size star quilt, I think, or queen-size. Yeah, it's sure. very large. It's the entire wall. <laughs> they asked me what colors I wanted. Then eventually, uh, when I wrapped up my time, they gave me a name. So I actually have a Lakota name that the, the tribal members conferred on me to go with this. Very beautiful. Yeah, out there became a, a connoisseur of star quilts. They, they, some are handmade, some are machine-made, some are cotton, some are satin. They, they can be in almost every shape and color you can imagine. Ministry here has two. There's one, a small one. In the gathering room, and there's another one in the reflection room in the ministry office. And what is it like, I mean, even going back to your father taking you on these, I've struggled to find the right, but it is kind of a mission trip yeah. to Honduras. And then you did all of your training, but now to bring medical students through the ISI back to these 
reservations that you have these relationships with and being able to open them up to that experience. It's consoling because I can see them connecting the dots. I can see them getting it. And what they're getting is not only are they interacting with a very different culture, a very different history, but they're capable of reflecting about that culture, about the way of life on the reservation that is uh, socially determining health. And then they're capable of stopping and noticing what it's like for them to be out there. So not only what are they learning about the Lakota and their healthcare and their history, but what are they learning about themselves as they're out there with the Lakota? I, it, for me, it's, it's really gratifying to see them begin to put it together. Oh, I see. They, they don't have any cars, and, they have, and the, the only health care is a long ways away. Transportation and weather can be bad. Transportation and weather, those are social determinants of health out there. Mm -hmm. The history is a determinant of health. In many ways, they continue to live out the history of their interaction with the federal government and to some extent with the church on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. uh, so the students will see that and they'll click. And then, of course, we, we make space for them to ask the question, well, what, what, what am I noticing about me uh, in this really different cultural, societal environment? What do I notice happening to me out here? Uh, so it's, it's gratifying to see that happen. It'd be nice if we could establish a footprint like our, our nursing school has established a really strong connection with the small nursing program that trains nurses on the reservation. There is a small community college functioning on the reservation called Guadalajara College. So they're they're training nurses in an associate degree, mm -hmm. and Marcella Nija now has a connection with that program as a result of of something that happened in 2017. I actually was able to take the dean of the nursing school and five of her senior faculty out to Pine Ridge. And as a result of that, they met with the nursing faculty out there mm -hmm. and a lot of the stakeholders. And then they came back here and they were able to get a grant or two to support the effort that permits them now to have programs in common with that school. Uh, and I think they'll continue to develop it. It, we'd love to do that with the medical school, but it's it's not obvious who who we connect with. Maybe the hospital, maybe a clinic. It's a lot harder to do with a medical school because the reservation does not have anything like a medical school. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. We'll see if something like that eventually happens uh, going forward. It'll be good to keep an eye on. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful something. What do you hope to be doing 20 years from now? 20 years from now, I may well not be alive. I may not be <laughs> doing anything yet. When I transition from Stritch, I'll probably transition to spiritual direction, retreat work. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's, what's up for me next. One never knows as a judge. You, you don't know where the need's going to come, mm -hmm. what could happen. There could be a need at one of our universities elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Trump all that, but 
I, I think before I'm finished uh, retreat work. Would be fun because that's what originally. Yeah, that would bring me back full circle, and I I do really enjoy it. I really do. And again, it's it's listening. It's really just listening back to to the stories and helping people look over the the ordinary stuff of life and notice well where where is the spirit speaking to them? What is the spirit inviting them to look at? How are they responding, and how might they respond? That's, that's probably somewhere in the next few years when I'm ready to transition <laughs> from the med school. And what do you hope that your legacy with medical students at Loyola would be? That I did no harm. <laughs> <laughs> what I would hope to, to leave behind is a sense, not only here, but also in everything else I've done, that that I, I went somewhere and I tried to look and listen for where the invitations were to collaborate. And I did my best to, to try to harmonize with those. That I, that I learned to check a lot of my assumptions and my agenda at the door and look instead to see where the spirit was already at work. That was really a critical learning came to me was just look to see where the, the spirit's already at work and harmonize with that instead of bringing your own stuff you know, so I'd hope that maybe that would be my legacy that I went I looked listened and tried to determine where the invitations were to, to work with what was already happening you know I don't go to to actually bring God and God's already at work wherever I Wherever I've been, did I see where that was, where God was at work, where the Spirit was at work, and did I harmonize with that? Or was I so full of myself that I had to bring my own project with me? We all have moments, though, too, where we, we have to check ourselves. <laughs> I think <laughs> can't it be, helps. <laughs> can't be all the time that we can anticipate ahead of time. So maybe that's what I, that I did no harm and that I tried to listen as carefully as I could to what was already happening uh, and try to work within that. Well, it's been so nice talking to you. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for coming by, Catherine. <laughs> I wish you the very best as your M3 year unfolds. And it's, it's an exciting, it's really an exciting year. Uh, it's probably Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to MedicusPodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.